Hey, how are you? I'm good, you? Pretty good, pretty good. Just uh, doing what I do. Yes. Which is content creation. So thank you for helping me out with that. Yes, thanks for having me. I believe I heard of you a couple years ago when you were on uh, some Canadian comics channel, uh, I think, and he interviewed me and then he interviewed you a few weeks later. And uh, I think we might even have a lot of mutuals. Yes, you've interviewed a few of my friends. I think you're referring to uh, Mark Hughes. Yeah, I, I was going to say Mike somebody, but you're right. It's Mark Hughes. Yes. That was my first interview ever. Okay. And so you're yeah. like, I'm your 40th or 50th then? <laughs> Not that many yet, but okay. getting there. Yeah. You're prolific too. <laughs> I'm somewhere around 200 or 300 at this point. Yeah. You've done a lot. Yeah. It's kind of just you, what's you, what, what you got to do um, is just pump out the content. Everybody's got a different thing, but I like the interviews more than just talking head stuff. Yeah. And you learn a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you read the book and then you talk to the author and you get, you get it from both, both angles. Yeah. Have you written any, uh, memoirs, books, substacks? I really need to get into writing. I have ADHD. So like my, mm. I'm scatterbrained and it's really hard for me to sit and focus, but I would mm. love to do, a memoir like my own story because it's just so crazy i've been through so much mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, writing is uh it's it can be difficult but doing stuff like this can get a lot of the material there and then you can just kind of do more organizing of what you already done rather than having to produce all the content into like this blank page which is just a really difficult space especially if your attention is acute to your environment. It's really hard to just pay attention to that flashing yeah. cursor. And I like oh. the interviews because each time I'm interviewed, I remember different things. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I try to like write it down in point form. So I remember later on. Mm -hmm. So where would you like to start? Would you like to do, give context about your, uh, your story and then the work that you're doing now and then the concerns you have with regard to, the government uh, of your country? Yes, that sounds great. Okay. So where did you begin? So I've been in the drug subculture for a lot of years. Um, I grew up around it. Like my dad was an alcoholic. My mom kind of got into drugs as well. A bunch of like, I call them junkies. People get mad sometimes about the language I use, but I'm just straightforward. Um, that's where I grew up in, like trap house type thing until I ran away from home and I got involved with an older guy and got into the drug scene. Um, Is this uh, 14, 15, 16? Yeah. The, I, yeah. So I started smoking when I was 12. And then I started smoking weed and then drinking and then it was ecstasy and cocaine and it just progressed, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then my opiate addiction landed me in jail in 2014. And it was just, I got arrested like five times from 2014 to 2017. And then in 2017, I ended up getting a federal sentence. So I went to prison. 
Oh, okay. How long were you sentenced for? I got three years. Um, that I took a plea deal. They were at, so I don't know if you're familiar with the way the system is, but so the crown is the one that decides what charges to proceed with or what charges to drop. So normally the crown who comes up with an offer um, and then you, if you don't take the plea deal, then you go through with the trial and you have the judge, et cetera. So like 95% of criminal cases don't even make it to trial. There's usually a plea deal. So the deal was if I pled guilty to the trafficking of fentanyl, he would drop the cocaine charge. Um, he would offer me three years, but my co-accused got to walk on all charges. Otherwise, he was asking for five to six years. So I just wanted to get out and see my kids and get my life over with. So I was like, screw it. You know what I mean? I'll just take the plea deal. But here's the kicker. None of them were my drugs, right? So I hooped my drugs and I went into jail with my drugs and got high. So I actually pled guilty to his drugs and he walked. And karma, he ended up getting picked up for an accessory after the fact to murder and is in jail. So... Jeez. Okay. Wow. All right. <laughs> and speaking of prison, how long did your stay end up being or your, your actual time? So I was in provincial and I transferred to another jail and I pled guilty in September, 2017, but I asked to be, to stay at the provincial jail that I was in because I was an enrolled in a university of Windsor course and I wanted to graduate my course. So the judge said, normally we don't do this, but I'll put your sentencing over. That way you can finish your course. So I was transferred to prison December 15th, 2017. And I was there for about 10 months before I got my parole. So I did about 17 and a half months inside and then had to do three months at rehab, four months at the halfway house, which took me to two years and then a year on parole. And did that process benefit you in reorganizing your values and your priorities in life? Well, it definitely gave me time to stop and think about what I was doing. I don't suggest prison and jail because like it traumatizes you and like you have to be a different person in there. It's survival. You always like you have to be rough and tough. Right. And like it teaches you a bunch of things that you shouldn't have to learn in life. Whereas if we, like someone like me, I needed long-term treatment. I needed trauma counseling, right? Like those things could have been done outside of prison, but yeah, it gave me like the time to pause and think about things. And like, I had been in and out of Narcotics Anonymous for years now. I just didn't want to follow the program. I wanted to do it my way. I knew best. So I finally was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a try and it either works or it doesn't work. But what do I have to lose at this point? And so I did the 12 steps. Um, there's like 475 questions altogether. And it was like a total personality change. Like I realized so many things about myself and my behaviors, why I do what I do. Hmm. And then since then, what did you end up graduating with through university? Oh, so it was a Walls to Bridges course. Um, they have them in some of the prisons. And what it is, is the university offers a course. And there are, say, seven university students, a professor, and seven people that are in jail, well, prison. And we take the course together. So we're equal. 
Um, but it's just a course. It's not an actual like um, program per se. Mm-hmm. So I took, um, it was my first feminist course ever. I didn't even know what feminism was. So that was cool. Um, And then I took another one when I went to prison as well, but it was different. It was on indigenous people in Canada and like the Indian Act and Truth and Reconciliation. And I learned a lot with that program as well. And then since being released from prison, I guess you started giving interviews and doing some sort of work raising awareness is that kind of what you're putting your energy and your thought into yeah so after i went to treatment actually it just passed a couple days ago i've been in toronto for three years now so i came to the halfway house in toronto and it was the elizabeth fry society and they were getting me to speak about like my experience in prison and drug addiction so i started speaking for them And um, they have a national conference that they do every year. So I applied for a scholarship to be able to go, and I won. So I got travel and accommodations to Ottawa in June 2019, and I went to the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Society's national conference. And it was at that conference that a woman I know from jail got up and talked about how she was, like, groomed and sexually harassed by a prolific serial pedophile. And all the employees were like, I'm concerned about the transphobia in this room and you don't need a vagina to be a woman. And they were just snickering about it. And she left crying, upset. And I just, I could not believe that nobody was going to say anything, that nobody was going to do anything. And that was like the biggest pivotal moment in my life, like in a long time. Because I was like, I have to do something. So that's when I started kind of speaking out. You know, it's actually funny. Do you know April Halley from Nova Scotia? She does the stats in Canada. Anyways, she somehow tracked me down through a picture that was tagged to Grand Valley on Facebook. And she had messaged me that January asking me about men in prison. I'm like, this girl's crazy. I'm not answering her. And I ignored the message. But then after the conference, I messaged her back and I'm like, what do you want to know? I'll talk. And that's how I got in and people started hearing my name because I was talking about the prisons. And then that summer I was on parole and Mark Hughes found me. And he asked me about the trans stuff in prison, and that was the first time I ever spoke about it. Okay, so that the trans stuff in prison, you witnessed that, and that was something that you would, on top of everything else that you're dealing with, that was something else that you had to adapt to? Yeah, I first encountered it in 2015 in provincial jail because Ontario passed gender identity in their human rights code in 2012. And then the jails didn't adopt that practice until 2015. So that was the first time I encountered it. And then there was some when I was in prison, they just started transferring in, but we had some who had surgery as well. And then I was in a halfway house with them. So I didn't really understand what was going on at first. So I kind of just brushed it all off. But like after that conference, my eyes were blown wide open about the whole situation. So from your point of view, first person, and then also just in your time interacting with uh, trans women in this system, prison and post-prison, what were some of the patterns of behavior, uh, problematic or not problematic? Like, what's the realistic view from your personal experience on that? 
Um, well, there are some trans women who are fine, never had an issue with them, right? Because I would consider them to probably have gender dysphoria and suffered a long time and they've had surgery, right? But there's other ones that are your typical male. So it's very aggressive behavior. It's uh, lewd comments, sexual harassment, grooming, um, standing outside bathroom doors, asking if you're on your period, um, saying they want to eat stuff off your ass, like a bag of Doritos, like all sorts of that type of stuff. Also, um, encountering you in spaces like the laundry room and then pushing up against you and trying to shove their tongue down your throat. So like I've had a lot of friends affected by this um, and I received so many reports about it as well. But it's just like, it's your typical relationships too. So another thing people don't think about in there is that, you know, you have your toxic relationships outside with like you're in drugs and there's abuse and it's just chaos that happens inside. So there are cliques that form around some of these men and then they date and they get away with being able to sexually harass or assault other women because of these cliques that form around the men. The women are scared and it's causing like complex dysfunctional systems of abuse and it's pitting women against each other. Um, it's just, it's so crazy that this is all going on inside and nobody wants to talk about it. That's the next question. To what degree is the institution or the government cataloging this and either suppressing the data or, you know, publishing the data? What What is the government's position on this? It is so hard to get data because the Correctional Service of Canada, CSC, they like to redact a lot of information or they say that they don't collect it. So it's hard to get this type of information from them. But there's not a whole lot going on. So the Office of the Correctional Investigator has put out a report saying like assaults and rapes in prison, whether it's um, prisoner on prisoner, guard on prisoner, et cetera, is not being documented. So they're not going through the protocols with that. It's not being captured. It's not being reported. Um, there have been things that have gone on with guards for decades and nothing was done. So for example, we have a guard in Grand Valley, which is a prison I was in, in Kitchener, Ontario. And he was offending for over a decade. Like he was bringing nail polish and smokes into the women in Max and exchanging them for sexual favors. Um, he was put on leave and then came back, no consequences. And finally, these women came back with like historical charges on him because it was happening for so long and staff was aware that it was happening. So he's finally gone and he's on charges, but they let him come back and be a primary worker in everything. So a primary worker is somebody that you have to meet with monthly, who does your visits, who does your levels, like security levels, your pay grade, et cetera. That gave him the opportunity to have time alone with those women. That just blows my mind. So none of this is being documented. And to think that they're just going to all of a sudden now document the trans stuff, they don't, right? So, so they don't document uh, uh, misbehavior from the prison guards, workers. They haven't been documenting the prisoner-on-prisoner -prisoner incidents. Yeah. 
they just they haven't and that's with the males and the female prisoners yeah there it's very low for reports um okay. it's amazing how much can happen inside those prison walls you know top of the line security and cameras and guards and yet they literally have so much power they can do anything it's just it takes so long so like our motto even in prison is put in a request and hurry up and wait because you're going to wait six months for your response or to be able to do something and that they're the same out here too it's like you send them letter after letter a tip after a tip and then you have to fight with the privacy commissioner to get it unredacted um i can't believe how they get away with all of this so the there's that it's a big mess and the trans stuff which is a big problem and then this thing called COVID-19 comes around and yeah. <laughs> stresses that system out uh, a system that doesn't have a lot of transparency that has a lot of fault already and that's what you you wanted to initially for this discussion speak out about so yeah. What is your role right now? What is your relationship to the prison population? What kind of work and what kind of, uh, I guess, communication do you have uh, with groups or with prisoners? And what, what's your kind of your position right now? And then from that position, what are you seeing happening? Okay, so I'm actually a peer researcher on a study assessing mental health, substance abuse, service disruptions for people released from custody during the pandemic. Um, so I do that for work. And then I volunteer for um, Strength and Sisterhood Society, which is a not-for-profit organization that deals with federally sentenced women. So I deal with like grievances, report taking, that type of stuff. And on top of that, I'm also a founding member of Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights. I run the prison team. Um, I've done like surveys, I'm doing everything. I'm always in contact with women across Canada because of all the different things that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then I also have my friends that are in prison that call me all the time too. Okay. So could you give us kind of the story of, uh, I guess, going back to early, the early months of 2020 and the pandemic or the lockdown began or the pandemic was no, uh, recognized as a pandemic by the Canadian government and other governments around the world? And then how did that begin to affect the prison population or the women's prison population in Canada? So they were locked down and actually they were just recently locked down again over Christmas and New Year's. So they locked them in their houses and then they put them into cohorts. So there are days when you're not allowed to leave your house for like three days um, because the other cohort is allowed out and you're not. So a lot of the women are, when it first happened, they actually moved 19 different people on the compound to different houses to break them up into cohorts. So that was very emotional for the women because we developed like bonds with these women inside, right? Like um, we comfort each other. We know each other's secrets. We have no privacy. Um, we develop like these bonds with women who get us through our time. So a lot of them are really upset because now they're separated for months and months from their support systems, visits stopped, um, 
escorted temporary absences stopped, work releases stopped, everything stopped. The volunteers weren't coming in. They went over a year without a single um, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. There is a huge increase in drugs being brought into the prison, which I thought was kind of odd considering that you have them in cohorts, they're locked down, and anyone that's coming into the prison is being isolated for two weeks in House 15, so they're cut off from everyone. Yet there was a massive amount of drugs on compound. Um, they, hmm. they, had, um, they were injecting um, fentanyl, nodding off, like just insane, no supports whatsoever, not letting the volunteers in, the church groups, it was a shit show, and now they're back on cohorts again. They were just starting to get programs back. Um, but the one thing that really... So jails have adopted the two-week isolation as well. So with jail, you're coming in off the street. You haven't been in, like with prison, right? You're being transferred from one jail to the prison. So like you're, you're not withdrawing from drugs, all that type of stuff. So what's happening is, is you're coming into jail and they're putting you in a two-week quarantine cell, which is segregation. It's solitary confinement, right? So they're putting people in these cells alone for two weeks just in case they have COVID. But what's happening is they're withdrawing in the cell and killing themselves. So last August... My son's father, who I was with for seven years, he got arrested and was put in the two-week quarantine cell and he hanged himself. And then, yeah, this happened in Sarnia Jail in my hometown. It's a small jail. There's cameras. They just put the cameras in the summer of 2017 when I was there. There is no reason for this. And to even make it worse, Four months later, my friend from public school did the exact same thing. In a two-week quarantine cell, hung himself, the exact same jail. And hung they hung themselves uh, in a mixture of, uh, I guess, solitary confinement and, and, and withdrawal? Just yeah. the psychological impact of that? Well, you don't even really need to withdraw. Like, you know, like my son's father was. But like... Going in and thinking, oh, my God, like, what am I going to do? You're depressed. You're looking at time. Like, you're going to lose everything. Like, you are in a really bad mental state. And to put you in a cell by yourself for two weeks without human interaction, when you're scared of COVID as well, right? Because what if you do have COVID? How long are you in the cell? If you keep testing positive, are you in here for a month, Right. So just the whole mental health aspect of it as well. Like you don't even need to be withdrawing, but withdrawing makes it even worse. One moment. I have to deal with a cat astrophe. That's okay. Just a sec. Just to wind back a little bit, you were speaking about women in houses. Is this a prison complex? And what are a house? What's a house? Or is this post-prison? Just so we understand what, what that's about. So in Canada, we have like the provincial system and we have the federal system. So provincial is two years less a day. Federal is prison and it's over two years, right? So 
with provincial, it's usually cement, cells, no windows, dark, dungy, you know, three per cell, and it's a six by seven cell, right? Zero privacy. The guards come through once every half an hour. And then with prison, depending on your security level, will determine where you go in the prison. So everyone with the women, we don't have reception. So men, they go to a reception for three months to be classified and then they find their mother institution. But we only have one federal prison in Ontario for women. So that is our mother institution, unless there's another determining reason why it shouldn't be. Um, So we start out at medium. And medium is a compound. So the best way to describe that would be like a gated community, except the gate doesn't open and you can't leave. Um, it's just, it's, um, so here's the prison and then you go out the door and there's a, a big circle track with houses around it. And then there's a path with another circle track with houses around it at the back. That's the medium compound. So we live in houses. There's nine bedrooms. <laughs> Um, two bathrooms, a kitchen, a living room, a dining room, a laundry room. And then we each each house has a garden and we grow our own vegetables in the summer. And then if you're a maximum, it's more like provincial jail. And then minimum is up the hill and it's like a pod style. So you do share like kitchen, etc. But you have like your own each different pod. So it's it's similar again to provincial, but hmm. So the what's happening right now is just to try to summarize and make sure that I have the story straight is that or it was being relaxed but now whenever somebody's processed into jail they have 2 weeks solitary period whether they're That's- tested or not are they tested beforehand and if they come clean it doesn't matter just no matter what So every jail is different and some of them have adopted different practices now. So now they'll put you in there for three days to await your test result and let you out. Some don't. Um, And it was the protocol at Sarnia jail to put them in there um, at the beginning of the pandemic. So like I said, they're not standard across all. Um, And even when they were, worried about all these outbreaks and transferring prisoners around and stuff, which I just thought was crazy because you have an outbreak at a facility and then you're going to transfer half of them to another facility, like just didn't make any sense. Um, so I, like, I can't say for sure that that's a protocol in every jail because they're all okay. different. And do you know any of the stats with regard to COVID infection and death and hospitalization within the prison population in Canada? There have been a few that did die, um, especially in BC. I remember when I was out there at the beginning of 2020 and there was, there was a guy in mission and like there have been a few. Um, it wasn't as bad as what I thought it was going to be. Like I thought it was going to rip right through those jails because they're so overcrowded and like the sanitation is just awful. Um, but a lot of the prisons came up with protocols and then they had like sanitation increase and they also released prisoners too last year and they're calling for that again now um which i kind of have mixed reviews about because sure yes they're they're low risk 
um, they're not public safety matters, you know what I mean? And they mm -hmm. probably shouldn't be there in the first place. But the issue is we're on a lockdown and all services are disrupted. Where are they going to live? How are they going to eat? How are they going to get a job? So basically, you don't have any of those provided, but you're going to let them out. They're going to be the first thing they're going to do is go back to what they know, which is drugs. And we already know the biggest risk is being released from jail, relapsing and dying. Okay. So the prison system has done a calculation and stated that we're going to lower the bar of who belongs in here, who we're accepting into here. And those people who don't reach that threshold or to fend or fentanyl for their for themselves right. so they're just released is have you seen or watched or know of the crime statistics in canada have they been fluctuating and i guess there's violent crime that's drug related and then just drug crime are drug crimes even being policed anymore or is the is the police part of this entire system kind of relaxing its prosecution and its investigation and its uh you know, disrupting of the drug culture so I can't speak on the exact stats, but I can definitely speak from my experience with this. Um, I've noticed that there's been a lot of like leniency. Um, some of my friends are being arrested like multiple times within a short period of time when they should, you know, like they were let out and then they're... This is my thing. They always let them out, but they don't give them any help. Like, you can't just let them out and think they're not going to do drugs. So, like, they're getting out, they're doing drugs, they're screwing up. They're getting out, they're doing drugs, they're screwing up, right? And then some of them are dying. Um, and then with the crime, too, like, my... So, I always say home. I live in Toronto, but, like, I'm never here because all my family and friends are in Sarnia. I was just too scared to move back to Sarnia after I got out of prison, so I kind of stayed here. Um, but like the murder rate in my city is crazy, crazy. Like in the last two years, they've al almost had like 15 murder convictions laid, like charges laid. Meanwhile, you're lucky to have one murder in every three years in Sarnia. Like it's very, like, it's not common at all. And now it's so common. I have so many friends who have been either murdered or charged with murder. Like, it's just, it, it's crazy and the robberies and the theft that's going on because nobody can afford to do their drug, but there's no help because we have service disruptions, which mean that all services have like gone online or not available and there's no more drop-ins. So there's no help there. There's no people there. There's no services. Um, hmm. And then they're worried about the overcrowding in the jails. So it's like complete mess right now. But okay. yeah, I notice an increase in violent crimes. I notice an increase in a lot of that. But I don't know if the stats actually support what I see. I'm okay. sure they do. Yeah. Um, and those murders, are they domestic violence related, generally speaking, or drug war related generally speaking from your point of view and i know this is very anecdotal so we'll just say that this is just anecdote right now i would say it's half and half um there have been quite a few women that have been murdered in the last two years in sarnia from uh, men 
Um, but there's also a lot to do with drugs. So, so like some of my friends that were arrested for murder, they were breaking into people's houses and stealing stuff. And like um, somebody was home and that guy ended up getting murdered. Um, and then actually just kind of been dealing with this one, trying to process it. But I started seeing a guy in the summer that I should probably not have been seeing. Well, I should not have been seeing. Anyways, he wasn't as clean as what he made himself out to be. And I was like, hey, like, you need help. I tried to help him. I cared about him. Um, but he just wasn't getting it. Um, and there were some red flags that really freaked me out. So I ended up blocking him on like both my Facebooks, on email, on phone. And he was still contacting me through other drug addicts, messengers. So then I had to block those. Um, and then he would come and show up at people's houses looking for me. And like, I'd have to hide in my friend's kitchen and stuff. And like, I was kind of getting freaked out. Like I would go to an NA meeting and he right around the corner for me and try to get me to go for coffee with him. I'm like, no, like I can't be around you. I can't hang out with you. Like you need, you need to get clean. Um, and then all of a sudden he was arrested and he's now charged with two second degree murders and indignity to the bodies. This and just what happened. The bodies? indignity to the bodies I guess. okay we don't need to specify yeah. that okay. i don't know what he did there but he did something and this... like <laughs> i could have been one of those people like he was yeah. obsessing with me but hated me so much you know how those guys are like they love you and obsess with you but they just hmm. hate your guts so that really scared me and i've like been dealing with that this week and i've been really freaked out I'm uh, I'm glad that you dodged that, and uh, I, I pray for your protection. This brings up an interesting sub-conversation or other conversation, segue conversation, about legalizing drugs. And I, I've spoken with one man so far, and that was a couple of years ago or a year ago, named Benjamin Boyce, uh, who is pro... Uh, I'm not joking. His name is Benjamin Boyce. He's pro-legalizing drugs. What you're bringing to light for me is that legalizing drugs isn't just uh, roses without the guns, especially with women. Uh, women would be quite impacted by the culture that would spring up or that has sprung up in drug culture. And it's a question if it was legalized, if some of that criminality and violence would diminish. What are your thoughts on one legalizing drugs? And if what you're describing now with the pandemic is kind of like this really inefficient way of legalizing drug uh, drugs, what's your take so on I, I debate this a lot and I'm trying to learn more on it, but the way that I look at it is um, you're, you can't win this by war on drugs. So I'm going to go off a little bit and I'll yeah. probably forget what the question is. But so back in 2012, we were all abusing 80s, right? Oxys. We were snorting them. Barely anybody was dying. And then the government was like, oh, they're being abused. They're being abused. We need to pull them from the shelf. So approximately March 2012, 
they pulled the oxys from the shelf and replaced them with neos and the neos were harder to abuse they had a coating on them that didn't want to come off so you couldn't snort them you had to do all these other crazy things to get the coating off so we moved to fentanyl patches right then some of my friends started kind of dying and then they did the patch for patch program so now if you have a prescription of patches you have to return that patch in order to get your next prescription so that was limiting the availability it skyrocketed the price okay because mm-hmm. i was getting fentanyl patches so cheap and when i stopped doing them they were over 600 dollars for a 100 milligram patch like it and, just and what's fentanyl i'm i always forget what what is fentanyl? What's the effect and and uh, what does it do to you and what's it from? It's a painkiller. Like painkiller. Okay. It's given to like cancer patients, etc. So it's a transdermal patch that goes on your skin for like up to three days and it's time release. Um, it's hmm. a downer. Um, it puts you on the nod, right? So, um, and it's really regulated with that whole skin patch thing. So you don't have to worry about injection, but you still say that people can die, I guess, just by covering their bodies with this stuff. Well, we smoke them, but people also inject them. So it depends on your, the way you're using it. It increases your chances of overdosing. But after the patches skyrocketed, they changed the chemical formula in the patch. So before you would get a patch and they're like square, you would cut your pieces, you would peel off the back, stick it on tin foil, and you would run the lighter over the top and the plastic piece would pop off and you could smoke it. What they did was is they changed the chemicals in it. So now when you went to burn the top piece off, it melted into the patch. So People were pissed off about that because it tasted bad. You couldn't smoke it proper. So then they moved on to fentanyl powder and carfentanil. So now it's not regulated. It's not coming from a doctor. You don't know who's making it. You don't know how much you're getting. You don't even know if it's fentanyl and that's our problem. So the Mm -hmm. government has created this problem and everyone's dying. No services or resources were put in place. It was just expected that all these addicts were just going to stop doing that drug once we took it away. Hmm. What's carfentanil? Is that what you said? Yeah. Is that so like it's, from battery acid or something? No, it's stronger than fentanyl. And actually, if you watch Jurassic Park, they talk about giving the dinosaur like five milligrams of carfentanil. So like that's the extent of how strong it is. It's like to knock out an elephant or a dinosaur. So carfentanil is one word. It's the technical chemical term. Okay. It's not car dash fentanyl, like something that you'd create out of your, um, some sort of fluid. Uh, Okay. And I mean, sorry to be a little cynical, but maybe that some government agencies like, well, if they die, then we won't have to worry about them anymore. And just kind of playing some sort of Darwinian game with the attic community. Is that, I mean, that's I, who would know if that would ever have happened. But I guess that's a, the most cynical reasoning behind that. Um, but you're saying that they didn't do anything to assuage that Darwinian process that has been occurring. Yeah, they haven't. Um, and I, I don't really get it because we're costing taxpayers a lot of money. Like, who do you think's using all the ambulances and the paramedics and the ER and the autopsies to find out if there's foul play, right? So, like, it's weird that they're ignoring us and not doing anything when in actuality it's costing healthcare system and taxpayers way more money to just ignore it. Um, 
And also to go back to your other question about the legalization point, um, we're not getting rid of drugs. They're not going anywhere. Like you can't stop somebody from doing something they don't want to stop. Um, there's a rise in crime, there's prostitution. So we notice distinct differences with male and female is when males are going to go um, rob you at gunpoint or rob a bank, right, for their money, for their drugs, whereas women are prostituted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so coming up with the money for the drugs is leading to the criminal activity. It's leading to, you know, the selling your body to make money so you're not dope sick. It's leading to like trafficking. And then you also have the big time trackers with the drugs. Like there's just all these different things, right? So my thing is, is one, I don't want the government to have control over anything because it's always about making money and it's never about what it's supposed to be about. And we can see that with like the methadone program. But if the government were the drug dealer, you know that the toxic supply is gone. Women aren't selling their bodies to make money. You're not being robbed because somebody can't afford $600 for the fentanyl patch. I was smoking two a day. That's $1,200 a day every single day. Like this isn't little money we're talking about. So I think that if I put the traffickers out of business, the importers, right? It would lower the crime. It would lower the prostitution. It would. I think that it would lower that because you're not going to stop them. And hopefully if you have them there getting it, then you can also get them with counseling and you can provide them with the services that they need, the connection that they need. Because what we're doing is just not working at all. Okay. You re this is such a huge topic. So we're, we're not going to be able to like get to the end of the, <laughs> the bottom of this barrel, but co uh, pandemic comes along, lockdown comes along, exacerbates all of this stuff. Drugs are still being sold. It's already a black market. So these, the people who are dealing in this stuff, creating it or distributing it, they're already, they're not going to follow a mask mandate only insofar as it makes them blend in. They're not going to follow a lockdown mandate, I'm sure. But because of the withdrawal of services, the withdrawal of community, the withdrawal of just I, I, just basically going to a bar for the night instead of shooting up at home, you know, the opportunities for doing something other than drugs, which is what you would do if you're already an addict and you can't, you don't have anything, that's going to swell. I, it, it's just such a huge problem. I don't even know what to ask about that. But what you're witnessing is within the prison system problems, but also within just the drug community or drug culture or whatever you call that, that part of society. There's tons of problems. And the government, what is the government doing about that so far as you see? The government's not doing anything. So from my, my city, Lambton County, we doubled in overdoses. So we were at 21 and we were at 40 by the end of 2020. Everywhere has doubled. Nobody is doing anything. Um, well, there are people starting to speak out about it. There are people really trying, but there's not enough. Um, but the government doesn't seem to be focusing on it. Um, they don't really seem to care. Um, and another thing that really irked me over the holidays was... Um, they started asking for the vaccine passport to be able to get into 
um, the, the NA and AA event at Christmas. So they originally said everyone was welcome. I get it. Restrictions changed, blah, blah, blah. But then these addicts are showing up on the door on Christmas Eve thinking, wow, I have all this support. I don't need to use. I can play cards, attend a meeting. And they get to the door and they're refused. So how many more are going out on the street and using now that they know that they're being discriminated, excluded, etc.? Like, <laughs> they are a marginalized community. They have a distrust of the government. They aren't going to listen to you and go get vaccinated. So now we're just like, and with the lockdowns and, and this whole thing, there is a whole group of people that are literally going to be killed by these mandates, by these lockdowns that have nothing to do with COVID, right? Like with addicts, they need services right away. So you can't, when I get really down and reach like rock bottom, et cetera, like this is before when I used, I when I needed a service, I would stop by or... I, I would call and I need that service right now. So I can't call, leave a message, wait for somebody working from home to call me back in three days to make an appointment, to come in next week, to fill out all these paperwork and then wait six more weeks or six months for a bed, right? Like that's not feasible with addicts. So we have like, we have made problems, like big problems because now people can't drop in anywhere. And there's not even a lot of the services that were available before. And those services are filtered by this thing called the VAX status. And then you would have to remember to have your card on you all the time because there's probably not a central database. And there's probably a reason why we wouldn't want a central database. But sorry to go there. Why doesn't some quasi-government body buy a bunch of fentanyl and go around and say, here, I'll give you a jab, and then you get a smoke, you know, and just... Uh, they probably already off. are. Okay, there you go. That's one way, and then uh, <laughs> it's dark stuff, but then they have their, they're vaccinated, but then how do you uh, promote that status? This is just such a cluster F. It's just so um, complex. So speaking out is one level of doing that, and that's what you're doing right now. What needs to happen from your point of view? What needs to happen or uh, raising awareness? What We're raising awareness about the issue, but what's the step that people can take to address or to pressure those in power to address this problem? They definitely have to speak out about it. Um, I know like one of the homeless shelters they have right on the door that they're not discriminating, everyone's welcome. And so any church groups or other programs that actually want to put on their services in their location, they can't have a mandate on it. Um, so like that definitely helps because like you guys, they live in a homeless shelter. Are you gonna be around them? No, you're not, so don't worry about them, right? You don't even want them in your backyard, but you're so concerned about these people who are living outside you know, and now you're denying them services. So speaking up about it, but also um, if people really understood um, how we paid for things, we would have the services that we need. Like for example, taxpayers almost paid half a million dollars to lock me up. That's a lot of money for me 
You know what I mean? So like you're paying over 200,000 a year to incarcerate one female federal offender. So looking at the stats in Grand Valley, they hold about 200 women. I'd say about 70% of them are in there for drugs and alcohol. So we're paying like $18 million this year just to lock up those drug addicts, those 70 drug addicts. Like that's an insane amount of money that could be diverted back into our communities for detox beds, for more programming, trauma-informed counseling, a treatment facility, right? We're spending our money ridiculously and it needs to come back into our communities so that we can have the services because yeah services are closed but there weren't really any to begin with right mm-hmm. um but i like honestly i'm i i don't know what to do to get people to understand what's going on and i just keep trying to speak about it and like let people know how the system operates because like i've had almost 30 probably more than 30, I had to stop counting people that I know die of overdoses in the last two years. Like, that's insane. Hmm. All my friends are dying. They're just dropping dead left, right, and center. And all those kids, we have an entire generation of kids that are growing up without a parent or two parents because they both died. What about them? Where are the services for them? Instead, we're locking them down again not letting them go to school. They're probably in the care system. And usually when you get into foster care, we know that you don't get out. It's group homes, youth detention, jail, prison. We also know the high rates of indigenous kids that are in care. We also know the high rates of indigenous women that are in prison. They top 50% of our prison population. That's insane. Right. And they're also low on the vaccine intake because of their mistrust of the government because of residential schools. I don't blame them. And now you're excluding them and doing all of this other stuff with the passports and cutting the services like it just blows my mind. Yeah. OK. Um, <laughs> so, so much to um, ingest and to process to change gears and to kind of like root it down. We, we've spoken about the systems. We've spoken of the problems. We've spoken about the, the current state of things with regard to the addict. You already said they're going to do it if they want to do it. You stopped. What were some of the things that helped you the most attitudinally, ideologically, insights or even just experiences or or relationships that helped you to revise your relationship with substances and with life i was at my rock bottom um when i got arrested it was either be arrested or die like so when i was arrested i was on xanax clomazepam molly coke crack fentanyl, weed, alcohol, the list goes on. I was mixing every drug possible, hoping that I would fall asleep and never wake up. So I was already at that like self-hate low bottom when I went in. But one of the things that really sticks with me is I was talking to my son on the phone. He was about six at the time. And he said, mommy, why did you have to do the bad medicine? Why couldn't you do the good medicine? And that broke my heart, right? Um, And it was just like those little conversations and comments from my son really changed my tune. Um, 
And also my daughter's aunt wouldn't let me see or speak to her for 19 months. Um, so that really, really <laughs> put things in perspective for me. But I really got involved with um, Bible studies and the church groups. Like I did like 85 Bible studies. And like I said, the 12 steps for Narcotics Anonymous. And I took every single program that was available. I just tried everything possible. I'm like, you have nothing to lose. Just do it and hope for the mm -hmm. best. And that's kind of what I did. I just, I didn't even think that I was going to change. I thought I was going to get out and get high again. What what was uh what was it about the Bible studies and the church groups that uh, nourished you or or helped you the most? They made me feel human. They respected me. They cared about me. They asked about me. They asked about my family. Um, you don't get treated like human in jail. So I really appreciated all the church volunteers that would come in because they gave me hope. Um, and I really needed that because you don't have a lot of that in there. And the lockdown or the response to the pandemic has cut that lifeline out. It has. It's completely okay. cut it out. They don't have any of their support or any of their volunteers. They don't have their hope. They don't have anything to look forward to. There's nothing going on inside. And the prison, I mean, this is a double-edged sword. Again, every problem's got, every possible solution's got 20 different problems attached to it, but they haven't allowed for some sort of Zoom meetings or virtual connections nope. in the prisons? They're starting to do video visits, but you have to behave. You have to qualify for them yeah, only okay. so often. Oh, okay. Which is crazy since society is all online. So you would think that they would let that. They can monitor it. There isn't yeah, an that issue would, there. It would seem like that would be a reasonable thing that the prison uh, complex can do. Um, to help out a little bit and to, you know, mitigate further problems with people's lives just by giving them human contact, yeah. uh, extra prison human contact. Well, yeah, because like the opposite of addiction is connection, right? And like there is no connection for anything, right? Anyone in prison, anyone out here on the lockdowns, you know what I mean? There's no connection. We haven't had connection in two years now, right? Hmm. It's just a lot of isolation. And, like, even with the lockdowns, I find myself affected by it because, like, it throws me into, like, prison mentality, right? Explain that. What is prison mentality? So, it's kind of like you go into protective type mode, you pull away, you isolate, you just do your time yourself, try not to worry about anybody else. Um, my thinking changes. It's really hard to explain, but I've noticed that I have a lot of just like prison protection that I'd used inside. Um, okay. So yeah, just, uh, just to use, uh, to borrow, um, from other uh, guests that I have, if, if you're looking at your environment, what matters to you most? 
changes, like what, what's salient to you or what's um, most important to you switches. So you're looking at a different environment because of the mentality and the prison mentality causes different things to become important and then different responses to be at the ready as opposed to a non-prison mentality. So with that metaphor, what are some of the things that become the most important things and then the, the behaviors that you're most ready to react to? these phenomena that you notice could you could is that a helpful framework that you yeah. could use to describe this because i think that you would be able to show people that you're not the only one that's thinking this way that lockdown's actually causing all of us to probably think like prisoners now so my biggest thing is isolating and pushing away from people so in prison i knew i had no one i couldn't count on anybody i didn't see anybody a lot of them weren't in my lives and now with this whole lockdown and pandemic and like I think the big push too with all the overdoses, I'm cutting everyone off. I'm pushing everyone away to make like their deaths and everything easier to deal with. Mm. And just kind of slipping into the selfish survival Heather um, that I can only worry about myself, take care of myself. Um, And it it makes it, it's hard too, because I kind of slip into, I try not to slip into depression, but obviously like this time of year, all the things that are going on, but that was really big in prison too. So I find like a lot of my thinking is how I was inside and also struggling with those, because you get really dark inside. Um, You lose a lot of hope, right? And like, we've been like two years of doing this now. And then I live alone and I live in a studio apartment. So basically it's not much bigger than a cell. Um, Hmm. And I'm doing a lot of the same things that I was doing in prison to try to escape. Um, But definitely the closing off and pushing people away, which is really kind of dangerous, especially if you're an addict because you need the connection to stay sober. Is there a poster of Rita Hayworth on your wall that every night you kind of take a spoonful out of? Is that something you're doing? Okay. I just, I just had to ask. So, and what is helping you through this? What, what are some of the things that you're doing that are giving you meaning and and pulling you out of that uh, dark orbit? Well, it was school. I was in school for my paralegal education, but I don't have school now. Um, so that's going to be an adjustment. Not even virtually? No. So we were virtual and then they said they were going in person, um, and that everyone needed to be vaxxed. And then they were online for two weeks and then to give time for vaccination. And now they don't know what they're doing. I think they're prolonging it, but they want you to go back March 1st or something like it's all over the place in person, online, in person, online. And the, but you have your work that you're doing, uh, yes. so you're connected with your your associations, and uh, so you're being able to be connected through that. Yeah, I definitely count on a lot of my supports with like Causebar yeah. and like my other colleagues and stuff. So I am focusing on prisons, and then like I said, I am working. So I do have um, I do have things to do, but everything's online. Right. So that's why I go home a lot, too, because I could sit here in Toronto and never see a single person for months. Right. Mm -hmm. Because everything's online. So what are some of the resources that you know of that are good for people that would 
be in a relatively similar position to you. Um, and that could be pretty broad because everybody's locked down in Toronto. So what are some good resources online, um, groups, even chat rooms, stuff like that, that you think that you would give the gold star to? I just encountered Twitter spaces for the first time like a couple of weeks ago. And I really enjoy those because you can make your own space with your own topic and you can talk with people all over the place. So mm -hmm. it's good to find like-minded people that want to discuss similar things as you. So I really like that one mm -hmm. and it's easy enough to get. Yeah. Um, the one caveat that I would put with Twitter spaces that make sure you don't establish the conditions for a struggle session. If, if the topic's too dramatic, it can get kind of crazy, but that's why I avoid them because I'm a sensitive soul. But if you're managing your own and you also, you just get to know people and then you get to vet who, who you want around and who you want to speak to, that's a, it's a great resource. Um, so yeah. what, where can people check out your work? Twitter's obviously one place. And then uh, what are the other organizations? And I'll link them all in the description. It's time to plug. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Twitter. I'm on Getter now as well. Same handle as Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Um, and then Canadian Women's Sex Based Rights. And then I also work at Strength and Sisterhood Society. What's that? It's the nonprofit organization that helps uh, federally sentenced women. Okay. So criminalize, institutionalize, marginalize. And what's the kind of the basic work that that organization does? It just reaches so education, out and... law reform, peer advocacy. Um, we have a support telephone line. Hmm. Um, we take a lot of reports from the women about COVID conditions and then um, write the warden and CSC and they just ignore our letters. And then we send okay. seven more. <laughs> like Is there a, are you guys posting this database, like all the receipts somewhere so people can see that what's being ignored and what's being reported? I need to work on that. Yeah. Cause okay. the women right. have been sending me envelopes of like any type of newsletter or anything that they get inside about COVID. Mm -hmm. So I do need to get on that. Mm. Well, Heather, I, I'm, I'm really happy that you've been able to change your life and, and find meaning in life. And then I'm also, uh, I admire quite a bit that you're throwing yourself into incredibly important issues and, and doing a lot of good for the humans who have been dehumanized, um, by either their own choices and, and then what happens via addiction, which can be very dehumanizing, but also dehumanized by society. Um, so you're doing the Lord's work. Thank you. 